Good morning, Roman Sunday School class. Coming to you this morning from the Stinchfield House, trying to continue teaching to you as best as I can during this coronavirus pandemic that everyone is experiencing in the nation and many around the world. I imagine there are many unreached peoples uh, that aren't a part of the developed world as we know it that maybe don't even know what's going on with the rest of us. But the majority of the world is, is aware and is experiencing what is going on. I wanted to start by asking the question, why, why am I still doing this? Why am I teaching from home? Well, that answer is multifaceted. And I want to try to say why I am still doing this why I care. First, I, I feel a great burden and responsibility to God. I feel these that, like Pastor Chance read from this morning in Ephesians chapter 4, that I have a specific gifting from God and calling, and I feel terrible when I am not striving to do those things. And let me just read that passage for you again from Ephesians 4 starting in verse 11. And he, God, gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. And so God has given certain, uh, specifically, pastors and teachers in the church uh, now in this last bit of the last age here to mature us all. And we're to mature one another. Pastors and teachers need um, maturation, growth, sanctification, just as everybody else. And we need the church body functioning uh, in the works of the ministry. The purpose of these gifts in the church is to build up the body, as Paul says. Another term is attaining to the unity of the faith, uh, growing in knowledge of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, so that we might become a more mature man. And the last phrase is so that we can have the fullness of Christ. And so we are striving for maturation, for growth to get to become more and more like Christ and so that we can know Christ more and become more like him. Like Jeremiah, I feel rotten inside or like a, a burning fire in my bones that I must teach, that I must talk to people about God. I must try to use my energy and time and resources that I have to try to tell people about Christ in any way I can. And when the, when the government lifts um, its restrictions on our social distancing and other things, then I am looking forward to continue teaching in the Sunday school room with you all and to be a part of our church body as a whole. Also, with Philippians 2, as Pastor Chance taught this morning, we are striving 
for maturity in our emotions, for the sanctification of our emotions, and for us to have joy in our sacrificial ministries. Joy in our sacrificial ministries. To sacrifice for the sake of the work and for ministry. And I would feel terrible if I didn't continue to do so. I care about you all, and I care about your growth, and I care about God being glorified in, in my life and in your life. And I pray that you will pursue that with me and pursue that with our church at Community Bible. And that through this time, we will all grow. Now, this morning, I had plans for us to break from Romans 13 and to go back to Romans 8 and to look at a specific passage um, that kind of will deal with addressing the very situation we find ourselves in now. And that is a situation of a form of suffering. If you turn with me to Romans 8, we'll begin reading in verse 18. And this is what Paul says, Romans 8, 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And I want to take time to look at a couple other Bible passages, specifically from James, where he talks about suffering, and then end up back on this Roman passage and unpack it. So starting with our Romans theme, or truths that we find in Romans, I want us to, to listen to what Paul says here, and then we're going to talk about a couple passages from James as supplementary verses, and then we'll come back to this Romans 8, 18 passage and try to unpack its truths together. Romans 8, 18, once again, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. The present sufferings are not worthy of being compared with the glory that's yet to be revealed to us. Okay, so... First, first, I want to open up with a couple of statistics and just talk about what's going on here worldwide. During the worldwide coronavirus pandemic, many people have experienced and are experiencing various kinds of suffering. Employers have less money for themselves and for their employees, which means that families, in, some families' incomes have been shaken. Uh, some people have died from this. Uh, the stock market and the economy has slowed, and that's a form of suffering too, economic suffering. Uh, retired peoples are more susceptible to illness, and retired peoples who perhaps are depending upon um, forms of 401ks and such in the in the stock market, you know, have their incomes shaken at this at this time. Fear, worry, anxiety, what ifs sadness, mourning, and even disgruntled anger is occurring across the nation. I'm sure there is peace like a river, joy, food, and laughter that is still experienced by many as well. We could ask the question, and this is important for us, I want us to ask this question, and we often do, where is God in all of this? 
we could be more straightforward and say, God, what are you doing? God, what are you doing in this? And we could ask that in several different ways with several different emotions. And you can look at people in the Bible that ask God or ask angels coming as messengers from God. They'll ask questions. And some people are punished, uh, like um, Zacharias, the priest, who is John the Baptist's dad. He's punished for his questioning because I think it's done in unbelief and he has to be muted for a while until his son is born um, nine or 10, 11 months later when John the Baptist is born and then God unmutes his mouth. So, But then Mary, Mary is also in, in a similar time frame is, is has a, an angelic messenger come to her and she believes that all this is going to happen in her heart because we know her response after. But she has a legitimate question. She just like wants to know, like, how are you going to make a child be with me? She kind of wants to know, I believe in sincerity and honesty, just, you know, what am I to expect? Um, am I to expect, you know, marriage through Joseph? You know, what, how is this supposed to transaction of me having this child? Because I'm not yet married. So she, she was just, it was honest. She believed that God was going to do something with her. We could see that in her response. But it seems that there was perhaps a different attitude in Mary's question. And so when we ask this question, we could ask this question, God, what are you doing on this earth right now in different ways? We could do it in anger. We could do it in disbelief. Or we could do it in belief and, and sincerity and in mourning or in sadness and be like, Lord, what are you doing? Help me to understand and to see. Help me to know what you are doing right now in this time. And sometimes we cry out in frustration and anger. And sometimes we are humble and broken on our knees saying, God, help me understand. Help me to see. What do you want me to know and learn in all this? But this is what I want us to know. Theologically, from the Bible the truths that we do have, the answers that God has given us, for sure. This is not the first time that hardship and difficulty has happened on the earth. The Spanish flu took, took approximately 50 million lives. And uh, Matt had talked about how he was reading a letter from his grandmother, I believe, who actually, they didn't get to meet in church for around six weeks back in 1918 when that happened. So... This is a part of American history already, something very, very similar. But 50 million lives were taken during the Spanish flu, estimated. Uh, it is said that in Europe that many more perhaps died and that a number of the European governments did not report accurately how many people actually died because they didn't want there to be fear or anxiety over the situation possibly. Or they didn't want it to look like they were weakened, their population was weakened in any way. The Great Depression was a devastating to many American lives and people worked just for food while their waistlines shrunk and children were hungry for days and people and adults. The American Civil War took over 600,000 soldiers' lives and many unmentioned people suffered disaster or the burning of farms and businesses during that war. Right here, Americans. The transatlantic slave trade, historians estimate, 10 to 12 million black slaves were ferried to the Americas, and 1 to 2 million 
died just on the journey over from brutality on the ships or punishment or discipline or diseases or other physical conditions while on board of an overcrowded slave ship. That's a lot of people suffering in a very painful way. The Bible predicts suffering. The scriptures are filled with all kinds of suffering all over the place. And while we are here on this earth, during this age, this present time that Paul speaks about, this present time, this present age, in Romans 8.18, that fallen humanity will suffer. And whether that's believers or unbelievers, all human beings experience suffering. Even Christians, the believers, and unbelievers. We all experience suffering together of various kinds. Another lesson we must acknowledge is our mortality. And this is an important one. Because we often try to insulate ourselves from death. In societies, we often don't like to talk about death or don't like to talk about the sobering reality of death or don't like to talk about what's after death. Many people in society don't want to talk about heaven or hell or an afterlife and what will that be like. They avoid it because it would have religious connotations. But we need to acknowledge our mortality and the insecurity and uncertainty of life and of our wealth or the whatever life that we have built and that we have now. Whatever security, whatever certainties that we feel, uh, they're actually uncertain. And nothing is certain. Uh, the Bible says we're here today, we could be gone tomorrow. Uh, James says that. You can't control anything. You can't control whether you're going to go do business in one city. God might take your life. Jesus warns the man who is building wealth in his massive barns. He's like, you know, I'm going to relax and take it easy. I'm going to do all this hard work in the upfront of my life, and then I'm just going to coast through life because I got these big old barns. And I'm just storing up and storing up and storing up treasures here on earth, and I'm not going to share. I'm not going to do anything. I'm not going to do ministry. You know, I'm not. I'm just, I just want to coast a lazy life and coast through life after I accumulate all this wealth for myself. It's not for others. It's not for serving God. And Jesus says, you fool, tonight your life will be demanded of you. And so God has control of the life. God has control of when your soul will leave your body permanently. And that's a sobering reality we need to think of during this time, I believe, in the lesson God would have us hold dear, is that we're not in control of our life or of when we die. We're not in control of that. And we need to live acknowledging God's sovereignty in every moment of every day, in every human being's life, especially our own. We need to learn not to trust in our riches or to desire them. Both of these things, trusting in riches or desiring riches for riches' sake, are both spoken of as being sinful in the Bible. And to trust in wealth or to trust in a comfort or to trust in certainty or to trust in a 401k or to trust in a secure job, those things can be taken from you. Those things can be taken from you. I was listening to a sermon from Dr. or Pastor John MacArthur at Grace Community Church and he was talking about one of his professors 
who was previously a Jewish man at Talbot Seminary. His professor at Talbot Seminary was a very learned man, very educated man, knew several languages, knew Hebrew, studied in Greek, and I believe he said that he knew several other languages, perhaps Russian as well as English. So this guy was very learned, and he was a theologian in his own right and a professor at a seminary and I don't remember which age he said but around in maybe perhaps in his 60s or late 60s his mind like Nebuchadnezzar essentially was taken from him um, I don't know if it was dementia but he forgot who he was and many of the things that he learned and he was put in a um, in a, I forget what type of living center. I don't know if it was a senior living center or what specifically, but he talked about how he, him and several of the other students or other professors would go visit this guy sometimes, and it was just amazing. Here was a guy who was a leader on the seminary faculty, and now his mind was removed from him. And we just don't know what God will allow to happen in our lives. There is no certainty. There's no certainty in our wealth of knowledge there's no certainty in our wealth and physical things that we can accumulate there is no certainty in our strength of our body um, we could break our back tomorrow and become a quadriplegic we just aren't in control of such things we must be humble before god with our strength with our wealth with our mind with everything everything that god has it's it's ultimately his it belongs to him we are simply stewards we are simply stewards, and we must be careful with how we live. And so I want us to think about those things. I want us to think about our mortality in God's hands, and I want us to think about our strength and our mind and our riches and our jobs. These things are all in God's hand as well. It could change tomorrow. It could change tomorrow. What is important and what is most important is serving God, loving God, and obeying his commands and laws. And we love God by doing those things. We show God our respect and love by obeying his word and by worshiping him only. But let us look to scripture and listen to what James says about suffering and trials. I want to read from James chapter 1, verses 2 and 4, and draw just a couple of points. James 1, verse 2 through four. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. James 1, 2 through 4, read from the New American Standard Bible. Okay, first point, consider it all joy when trials come to your life. Look at the first part of verse 2. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. And it's not just any one kind of trial. And we have, I believe it's in James, James 5, where he uses Job as an example. And Job had different kinds of trials. There was trials in the body. There was trials in his family. There was trials of his business being collapsed and taken from him. There was a lot of different kinds of trials that Job experienced in a quick, short amount of time. 
that touched a lot of different areas of his life. So there are various, we are going to encounter various kinds of trials, James says. And he says, consider it all joy when this happens. Well, why? Why, James? Why would we do that? How are we to consider it joyful when it is a painful, suffering types of things? Trials, difficulty, these things don't feel good at all. How am I to cultivate joy? How am I supposed to consider a trial joy? How am I supposed to think that way when it, when it feels so painful? Well, this is what James says. This is what we are to know. And if you look at verse 3, it's know. So this is the knowledge that we're supposed to have when we answer that question, why? Why suffering? Why various trials? Why difficulty? James wants us to know, as in the text, it says know, that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And so we are to have this knowledge going into trials. James wants us to know it's for a purpose. And he says what that purpose is. God is producing endurance in your faith. And endurance is talked about in the Bible as assurance of salvation is one thing. But secondly, your faith matures in this you're you will god when god matures us as christians when god sanctifies us we experience various degrees of joy as christians and many saints know this that man when you go through a low and when you go through a valley and then you start to see the sunlight and you come out and you experience the joy of your salvation again Oh, there, it is rich. When you see the sunlight again on the other side of the tunnel and God brings you up the mountain again and out of the valley, that it's kind of like, it's kind of like food. If you don't eat for three days and then you come and bite into a celery stick, that celery will taste very, very delicious. This actually happened to me on a hunting trip, so I'm sharing kind of a personal story there. I was out hunting and walking in the woods, and I forgot my water bottle at home, and I had no water, but my wife had packed some celery sticks, and it was very cool outside. It was like 40 degrees, so the celery sticks were very cool, and when I got into the truck with the other two guys, we were tracking some deer and trying to push them, and we were looking for these deer. I was just famished and thirsty. And, I had ha and there was a peanut butter sandwich in there, but I'm like, man, peanut butter, that's gonna be terrible. I'm so thirsty. And then I snapped open the bottom of my lunch container and there was like these five or six cut, cool, thick, juicy celery sticks that were full of water. And that, I bit into that and it just quenched, quenched my thirst and it gave my, it felt like it went into my body and was like a, oh, relief and it just felt wonderful well that's what our what happens with our faith through trial uh, our joy and our satisfaction in God we experience and taste it in a greater way I believe as the Bible describes it we experience and taste the satisfaction in God in a greater way through trial and that proves true in biblical characters lives too Job Naomi 
Ruth, different men and women in the Bible that went through hardship, difficulties of various kinds, uh, tasted the goodness of the Lord on the backside, and they were greater, greater kingdom citizens. Um, their belief turned to worship and joy in greater ways, and they had a deeper intimacy and knowledge of God on the backside of it. So I want us to know, like James commands us to know, that this testing of our faith produces endurance, perseverance. And endurance, James says in verse 4, has a perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And so God is bringing about a completeness. He's bringing us to perfection slowly, trial by trial, various kinds of difficulties in life. He is making us more like Christ, as Paul says, bringing us to the fullness of Christ, as we read in Ephesians 4, 11 and 12 and 13. We are being completed to become looking more like the Son of God who suffered trials and temptations himself. And we need to become more and more perfect. We need to come to that place of completion, fullness, maturity, and to look more and more like Christ. And that's what God is doing. He's sanctifying us. He's bringing us to look more like his son. So we are to know that this is producing endurance and that endurance will have a perfect result. And that perfect result that God is working out in us is so that we can become a more and more complete and mature man or woman in Christ and look more like him. Okay, going to James 5. So skipping from James 1 where he introduces us and going all the way to James 5, he gives us a couple of other examples. James wanted us to, he says this in James 5 verse 7. Therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. So we're to have patience our whole life until the coming of the Lord. Endurance, patience, similar themes here. He gives us an example. The farmer, and many of you are farmers, or we, are, we live in a farming, ranching community. There's people that live on the land, live off the land here. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, James says. And farmers are being patient about it. They wait patiently for the crop to come up until it gets the early and late rains. So we wait for the rains to come and the plants slowly grow. We're waiting for that crop. We're waiting patiently to see the fruit finally bear forth. And while we go through trial, we are waiting for the fruit in our lives to come through. We don't know exactly what God's growing, but he promises that there will be a stock that will result in fruit at the end. And that's holiness. It's purity. It's more Christ-likeness. So James says in verse 8, 5, 8, You too be patient. Strengthen your hearts, brethren, for the coming of the Lord is near. Don't complain against one another so that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. And so it, the bad thing is through trial. In verse 8, 9, and 10, the bad thing in verse 9 would be to complain going through trial. That would be sinful. That would be wrong to be a complainer or to complain against other Christians. That, And specifically in this text, you might have Christians that will hurt you or you might have other human beings, specifically rich people that are causing some of the poor to suffer more. They withhold their wages from them or they don't pay them well enough. 
uh, to get through life and they are suffering. James says to be patient and James warns rich oppressors with a great warning from God for being an oppressor, for oppressing the poor and not giving them their wages and for not taking care of them in their life or their family. There's lots of warnings in the Bible about that to the rich that if you have people that are mowing your fields and that are getting your work done and you are living lavishly on that wealth and you're not seeking to even take care of the basic needs of your employees or their family members, that's a bad place to be in. That's a, that's a dangerous place to be in as an employer and to, to be living lavishly with your wealth while those who are doing all your work are suffering. Um, that's not looked on favorably by God, that you have no heart, no love for your neighbor that's doing work for you you have no love and compassion for them or their loved ones to take care of their health and their basic human needs shelter clothing food so they can have happiness and some laughter too you know they're they're not demanding they're not supposed to demand some if you pay for some lavish vacation but that you love them and take care of them well as an employer you take care of them well and you seek to meet their basic needs and more done out of a heart of love and care for your fellow human being as a fellow creature that was made by God. So we're not supposed to be complaining whether if you are poor and you are being oppressed by the rich, uh, you're not supposed to be complaining. And no matter what kind of trial it is, we're not supposed to have this attitude of complaint and grumbling. So that would be sinful. But, verse 10, James gives us an example to live by through trial. Look at verse 10, chapter 5, verse 10. As an example, brethren, so James wants us to look to this example from the scriptures. Of the suffering and patience, take the prophets, so look to the prophets, who spoke in the name of the Lord. We count those blessed who endured. You have heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings with him that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. So Job was the rich man. So James, James is just talking in general. While he's giving examples, those examples weren't like a perfect example, like exactly like these poor people were going through. Job was the rich man in this case, and he had many employers. He was like a chieftain, and he took care of his people well, actually. Job was looked at as a sage of wisdom and like a chieftain who was like a judge and a ruler in his region. But it seemed that Job was a holy man, a righteous man that did a lot of justice and kindness uh, toward a lot of people. And he was an employer who took care of his employees. So James isn't giving us like, oh, hey, a perfect example. He is giving us an example that follows suit in all matters and kinds of suffering. So if the prophets endured persecution from Israelites and from disobedient peoples who would reject God and reject them and their message, and if Job suffered all kinds of physical ailment, business being taken away from him and that, these are examples of patience and endurance. No matter what kind of trial or hardship you're going through, the Bible draws upon those principles, those examples of, of men and women in the past for us to look to no matter what kind of suffering or hardship we're going through. And James is exhorting his readers, specifically the poor, that were not being paid their wages, 
to consider these examples in the past as they suffer through this trial. Don't sin, don't complain and grumble. You can cry out to God and say, God, please grant me justice, please. But don't do so with a grumbling, woe is me, vendetta. Do so waiting on the Lord and being patient for the day of the Lord. So we're to consider the example of the prophets in Job and understand this. The Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. God sees you, James says. God saw Job. Jesus says God takes care of the birds of the field and the lilies and the flowers and the grass. And you're much more important than a sparrow, a bird, and a flowers that God clothes and takes care of. God sees you. Whatever suffering and trial you are going through, God is intimately aware of it. God knows your pain. He knows your suffering. And he will be with you through it. And he is producing something in you through this. He is producing your holiness. He is producing in you endurance, patience, more Christ-likeness. He wants you to become more like his son through this lesson, through this time. James exhorts us to be patient, not to complain. James tells us to take an example, look to the example, consider and know the example of the prophets and of Job. You can throw in Ruth and Naomi in there, and there are others in scriptures. This is what we need to know. These people suffered. They were God's chosen. They were believers. And that heaven is nearer than we think. God's compassion and God's mercy is right around the corner. Coming out of the valley, the joys of salvation is near. We don't know when God will restore perfect joy or in our life, but we do know that life is very short and life is very small. And that as we endure, God will bring us home to glory one day. Even if we are going through the final trial and we die in pain or suffering of death, from some kind of illness or something like that. Glory is just right around the corner. Infinite joy in paradise. Like the thief on the cross who is suffering horrendous pain at his death, Jesus promises paradise in the next moment. So I want you to hold on to that even if you are in the final suffering, if you find that suffering one day, that you are suffering greatly in the last moments. Joy is just around the corner. Infinite joy in paradise with Jesus Christ is just around the corner if you are on your deathbed in some way. Now getting back to Paul, turning back to Romans 8. Consider this, my brethren, that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Whatever suffering we go through in this life, Paul is giving us something amazing to think about. If we are experiencing great, great pain, great, great turmoil in the soul or in the mind, he says that heaven, that glory, will far exceed whatever pain we are experiencing now. So if it feels great, the joy and the glory and the beauty of heaven will far exceed whatever lows and uh, pain in the mind and the heart that we experience, heaven will far exceed in joys 
and in laughter and in love. Those things will far, uh, far drown out in, in its heights and in its width and in its depth. Those good things will be far taller, far wider, far more deep than whatever pains we experience and difficulties we experience now. The present sufferings are not worthy to be compared. And so he uses that comparison. The sufferings can't even come close to how much greater the glory will be one day. The greater the glory will be one day. The glory that is to be revealed to us. So we must cling to that hope and to understand that the sufferings we go through, final point I want us to listen to is this. And what I want us to understand is that we can't compare this sufferings with the glory. Like it, we can't even begin to compare it. We don't even have the means in our mind to understand at how much greater the joy and the glory will be in heaven. Lord, thank you for this time together. I pray that this will edify uh, people in Community Bible Church that, that um, are able to listen and to hear this through YouTube. Thank you for these means to still teach. God, thank you for giving me the desire and the giftedness to do so. Whatever you have given to me, Lord, I want to use it for your glory. Lord, I pray that this will edify the people at Community Bible Church, that they will do works themselves that magnify your great and glorious name, that they will endure trial, and that they will have greater joy and their obedience to you through the end of it, that they will look to the example of the prophets and of Ruth and of Naomi and of Job, that they will see how they lived and that they will endure and they will wait like the farmer is to wait. As they endure through trial and as the stock grows and as their faith grows, that they will understand that there will be beautiful fruit at the end, that there will be grain for sustenance at the end, that there will be something produced at the end and that is Christ-likeness, greater Christ-likeness and fruitfulness. Help them to endure through this time of trial. Whatever the forms of suffering they are going through, be with them and comfort them. I pray that they will take heart in your truth and in your scriptures. And Lord, that we as a church, we as a whole church body, will greater, greater magnify you through this. That our growth will be great through this time and that you will produce fruit on the backside of this trial, and that we will go out in a greater and greater way for your glory, that we will be greater salt and greater light for you and your kingdom, for your gospel, for your glory and your name and your fame to all peoples.